0: Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Fireside. I have a really, really good program tonight. This is going to be a fun live session. I, I'm a couple moments early. I'll let the uh, the mad rushing crowds come in. All six of you. <laughs> Hope everybody had a good week. I Hope y'all uh, had fun. I Hope you succeeded in all of your goals. I know I did. I've been studying like crazy on the uh, on the uh, facsimiles and I found a really excellent way to present the first presentation of many that I'm going to do for the facsimiles and I'm really excited for tonight. Uh, it's going to be a Fabulous overview. Hey, Bazoomer. Who watched General Conference? Hey, Lamb Chop. Good morning. Uh, I confess I did not watch General Conference. I'm going to review it uh, later on. I will watch it when they post it on the church's website at my own discretion. And uh, I, I have trouble listening to them because they put me to sleep or else they bore the heck out of me or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, I got to confess, you know, that's my sin for the day on this fine Sabbath Lord's Day is I did not watch General Conference. <laughs> oh, shucks. I got on just a couple of minutes early so I could yammer with you while folks come in. And uh, I've got the ushers set up in the aisle so that they can get you to your proper seat and all that noise, you know. So I'm excited about tonight. I really am. I I've, I've had a uh, a good week of uh, research and studying and we're going to get on the facsimiles in a really cool way. I've got a great way to start it. Hi Ruth, how you doing? Diana Moss. Good, you did see it. Okay, excellent. Uh Hi from Washington State, Diana Moss. Welcome welcome to the Sunday night firesides of the backyard dingaling, or I mean, uh, Professor or the Backward Professor or something like that. You know, they'll call me all kinds of names. That's what makes it so blasted fun, <laughs> right? Hey, I hope all you guys had a good week. I hope you got a lot done and accomplished all of your goals. Don't set unrealistic goals. You know, my goal is just to simply wake up on time every morning. No, this week I did a lot of reading, so it's been a good week. Okay, uh, let's see. Oh, hey, it's six o'clock. Let's get started. I've bantered enough. First off, I do have a couple of items, uh, news items that I want to share with you just briefly, and then I will jump right on to these facsimiles, which is just, so fascinating. I, I, I mean, what a subject to look at, right? And I mean from a lot of different angles, not just the uh Joseph Smith Mormon angles. I mean, there's a lot to this stuff, man. Fantastic stuff. Those ancient Egyptians, man, they were good people. They were really some. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm gonna do with general conferences. I'm gonna watch the recap of of I, I'm going to make a recap of the general conference. Yeah, Nemo is good. He's fun to watch. Hey, Teo. Oh well, thank you, Tio. Uh, I have a whole boatload more beginning tonight with the facsimiles too. I had a good week studying it. So, anyway, let me give you this uh, this particular news item, and, and I say news, but uh, Daniel C. Peterson. LDS apologist extraordinaire and the main editor at Farms when they existed of the Farms Review of Books has said on his blog this last week that the Shade's message board with all of the negativity and with all of the soul-wrenching criticism, etc., is the most soul-destroying place we can spend our time And I just say bunk. (laughs) From Dr. Peterson's point of view, of course, we don't bear our testosterone momies like Mormons do on other message boards. true. We actually get down and discuss the meat and discuss the issues, not the whitewashed version, not just the faith-promoting issues, although we do like those too. But there is a spirituality to be had on Shade's message board. I understand why Peterson, it would go over his head. He's too shallow to comprehend it, for sure. But here's my issue with this. I take issue with his concept that it's soul-destroying. What is soul-destroying, Dr. Peterson, is to have the one and only living true church upon the face of the whole earth with its revealing and holy Melchizedek priesthood holding prophets and apostles whitewash the history Gaslight us, then give us a phony interpretation and tell us that the Holy Ghost will bear witness to us that that whitewashed version is true. And if we aren't getting a testimony, then we are not doing something correct. We're either too wicked or else we're lazy learners, etc. That is what is soul destroying, Dr. Peterson. Just my Quick retort to Dr. Peterson's obviously 180 degree backward uh, misled apologetics. So we we expected that, honestly. So, Paul Osborne, what is the king's name in facsimile number three? I'm going to call him uh, Fritz tonight. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that yet, but I will get there. Patty Cake, good to watch you and or good to see you sorry watch you see you Dan vogel welcome uh looks like we're all getting here lamb chops here roo smart john bradley oh oh well thank you yeah i i want to get back on with Derek lambert too on myth vision he's excellent um I we have plans on on doing more together thank you that's very nice yeah he's a good guy myth vision is a great podcast it really is okay so anyway that's my response to Daniel Peterson's silliness now let's get on to something much more interesting and serious than the weeping and wailing of an apologist who has lost his stand and who can't stand other people thinking differently than he does. Uh, Except Lou Midgley, of course. Him and Dan always think alike, and that's why they're best buddies and why everybody else in the world is their enemies, because we misinterpret everything. We can't possibly have the brains they do because they have PhDs. And don't forget, Lou Midgley's PhD is on Paul Tillich. He'll have you know. Well, that makes him significant. So, tonight... I have discovered earlier this week an overview of the entire apparatus of the facsimiles of the Book of Abraham, a really decent overview. Now, I agree, granted, this was in 2003. However, something very interesting has happened here. Michael Dennis Rhodes, he wrote this overview for the Religious Studies Center In 2003, he talks about how he has taught the Pearl of Great Price and the facsimiles and Egyptology for 20 years, and so he is an authority on this subject. And he discusses, it's only seven or eight short pages, which is really nice. My impression of his study is that what he has given us in this is the best evidences that he thinks is the cream of the crop in favor of Joseph Smith for the fact similes. And I know my good friend Paul Osborne has truly, totally refuted every single one of these, and I will get to some of his materials as well. What I want to do is share... Molstein's material with you because the amazing thing now is he genuinely believes, he thinks that after, at the end of this study, that he has given much credence. He has given magnificent support to Joseph Smith and his translation from the Egyptian papyri and his interpretations of the facsimiles in the book of Abraham, all three of them, one, two, and three, See, is it math grand? He says this confirms his own testimony. Now, that's very interesting. Because after tonight, you will understand one of two things. Either Michael Dennis Rhodes doesn't have a clue about the Holy Ghost and how it operates, or else the Holy Ghost is lying his butt off to Michael Dennis Rhodes because of the maybe, oh, there's about a dozen points in this study that I'm going to analyze tonight, and I'm going to show you direct evidence from the sources that completely destroy... Michael Dennis Rhodes' contentions and his arguments and his evidence that I'm astonished he dares bring the Holy Ghost into this. But see, that's the typical, you know, Mormon apologist stance and take, right? but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So let's read what Michael Rhodes said. First, he gives the historical overview, yada, 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 the papyri came, and then Joseph Smith bought, then it was sold, some of it was destroyed, now it's back, etc. Let's get on to the good stuff, shall we? The questions raised by the papyri. So he's going to give us two brief paragraphs Overviewing the problem here. And in some respects, this is well done. In other respects, it's a hit and miss. But it's okay. He's writing it for a popular Mormon audience. In other words, the youth, the kids. So he thinks he can get away uh, with just throwing out ridiculously unsupported assertions, which I will tag him on, I'm going to hit him like Will Smith did Chris Rock, except I'm not going to do it in the academy, I'm going to do it rightfully, No, no, I don't advocate violence, that's a metaphor, come on, that was horrible what Will Smith did, boy, Chris Rock handled that very well, didn't he? Okay. Here is Michael Dennis Rhodes. These Egyptian documents. Now, this is his overview of the problem that the papyri have caused us, right? Let me see who all is here and talking. Oh, Nathan Arms. Thank you. Good to see you. Okay. These Egyptian documents can be reliably dated to somewhere between 220 and 150 BC. In other words, we're way up into Ptolemaic times. We're not in Abraham's day at all. On the basis of the handwriting, that's how they've been dated, and Mark Conan is pretty firm on that. We've got that down pat. The historical period here is that in which the religious writings on these papyri were in use in Egypt and the historical references to at least one of the original owners of the papyri himself. They cannot possibly date to the period of Abraham, which is roughly between 2000 to 1800. BC. This seems to contradict the statement in the introduction to the book of Abraham that states it was written by his own hand upon Papyrus. Moreover, the writing on the surviving fragments can all be translated, and none of it mentions Abraham or seems to be related to the text of the book of Abraham in any manner. Modern Egyptologists maintain that the facsimiles do not at all represent what Joseph Smith said they do. The original facsimile number one of the Book of Abraham is found at the beginning of the Book of Breathings papyrus, and the hieroglyphic writing on it, associates the figure on the couch, that is figure one, with Hor, who is the owner of the papyrus, who is portrayed as being resurrected by the god Anubis, who stands over him. Above and to the right of Anubis, Hor's soul is represented as a human-headed falcon. Facsimile number three, although not among the surviving fragments, also came from the same book of breathing since the name of Hor is found three times now in the hieroglyphic writing on the facsimile. In that facsimile, Hor, having been judged and found worthy, is being ushered into the presence of Osiris, uh, the god of the dead who is seated upon his throne, Behind Osiris is his wife-slash-sister, Isis. Hor is being escorted by the god Anubis, guide of the dead, and Mott, the goddess of truth. Like facsimile number three, facsimile number two is not found among the surviving fragments, but the writing on it indicates it belonged to a man named Sheshonk, and the hieroglyphic writing on it deals with Sheshonk's happiness and well-being in the Egyptian afterlife. That's Rhodes' overview of the Joseph Smith papyri that we have, uh, focusing more on the facsimiles than anything else. Okay, so his resolutions to the problems constitute the entire rest of his response of his article, and this is what I want to get to. This is a really, a really interesting. The statement in the introduction to the book of Abraham that it was written by his own hand upon papyrus does not necessarily mean that the papyrus Joseph Smith was translating was the original written by Abraham. Now, this is is Rhodes trying to alleviate the obvious dating problem. Do you notice... You should if you've been watching my series here. Do you notice who Michael Dennis Rhodes is ignoring in order to give this modern apologetic? I'll give you one clue, and his name is not Adam or Eve. He has to ignore Joseph Smith and what Joseph Smith said. And all of the early contemporary eyewitnesses, right? They have to do that. So this is this is interesting. The term by the hand of, he says, can simply mean that Abraham is the author of the book. In Hebrew, for example, bayad means literally by the hand of, but simply designates the agent of an action, and it's generally rendered in English with the preposition by. Now, what in the love of Sam Hill Hebrew has anything to do with this, I haven't got a clue I once used that same apologetic we're not talking Hebrew though, so that is just a fluff irrelevance right, who cares what Hebrew thinks, we're talking (laughs) we're talking book of Abraham by his own handwritten upon papyrus from Egyptian hieroglyphics right Okay. So, notice again, they try to deflect. They try to show, wait, 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 we've got some options here. No, we don't. Not based on the provenance that Joseph Smith himself gave. Yeah, that's what we're going to stick with. You always stick with Joseph Smith on this. I'm just saying. Don't shoot me. I'm the messenger. But that's how we do this. Yeah. So, While the papyri that Joseph Smith had were written nearly 2,000 years after Abraham, they nevertheless could have continued or could have contained, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. These papyri could have contained a copy of the book of Abraham, which Abraham was the author. Yes, they could have Mike, but that's not the issue. The issue is did they? And the answer to that is a firm nope. Not a chance, Buckwheat. Thanks for playing. Me no got a clue. (laughs) Let's keep going. There are numerous examples, numerous examples, he says, of Egyptian papyri that have more than one text on them. And thus there could have been a copy of the book of Abraham on the same papyrus as the whore book of breathings. Do you know what we call this in philosophy class? Philosophy 101, that's called an unsupported assertion, right? It's balderdash. There could have been. Well, it may be. Yeah, but what's the evidence show is all we're interested in. Not in speculatory ramblings of faith-promoting fluff, pap, and pablum. Correct? Okay, then. We're, get, we're making progress here. I will get into the details of this reputation because he comes back around to this. He's kind of given a, an overview real quickly of how he's going to approach this. Well, what about the association of facsimiles 1 and 3 with the Horror Book of Breathings? Yes, indeed, Mr. Rhodes. What about that association? The likely explanation here is that the original illustrations done by Abraham had been modified and adapted for use by Hor, the owner of the papyrus. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry, I'm being rude. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Okay, (laughs) what Joseph Smith did with the facsimiles is similar to what he did with the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He gave the original meaning of the Abraham illustrations, correcting the distortions that had taken place over nearly two millennia. The same, of course, holds true for facsimile number two. But is there any evidence that even in distorted form these illustrations were associated with Abraham anciently. There is indeed. I will discuss each facsimile in turn. However, before we allow him to proceed, let's check on a couple of items, shall we? He says the original meaning that Abraham gave the illustrations is the one that the Priest, the Egyptian priest, Hor, could have adapted. And then he says that he corrected the distortions that had taken place over nearly two millennia. Now, let's make something perfectly clear. All of this speculation is fine and well, it's okay to participate in and dawdle with, but the question is, Do you believe Joseph Smith? Obviously, Rhodes does not, because Joseph Smith claimed that the papyri that he had physically, that he was touching and holding, was the same papyri that that Abraham pinned his book upon. And he drew the fact the figures. They called them figures instead of facsimiles in Joseph Smith's day. And that Abraham himself did not finish it, but Joseph in Egypt later finished up on the papyri and the story with his own book of Joseph. And these are the two roles Oliver Cowdery only ever mentioned two roles, which Joseph Smith himself, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, according to the eyewitnesses. Now I'm just I'm just repeating what those lying, dastardly eyewitnesses and contemporaries of Joseph Smith taught, just like those lying contemporary witnesses of the Book of Mormon. They said Abraham himself wrote this down. And this is his book. Joseph Smith even claimed he knew where the signature of Abraham was, as I've shown in previous videos, right? Partly, P. Pratt says, this magnificent thing, so did Wilford Woodruff. Both of these men said, this magnificent, amazing papyri has been hidden for 4,000 years, untouched uncluttered, unspoiled until it was revealed for our prophet Joseph Smith to translate And testify to the world that a true prophet is back upon the earth in line with the biblical prophets. Now, I'm adding words somewhat to the Pratt and and Wilfred If This is true. I confess that. But that is the overall impression and interpretation and teaching through the years once they acquired this papyri from Abraham himself, which he personally wrote. That is how it was understood by Joseph Smith. Well, nothing Rhodes says is accurate at all if Joseph Smith was right. But everything that Rhodes says can be allowed to be accurate if... Joseph Smith is wrong. And that's what the apologists don't want us to know. Very remarkable, isn't it? It is astonishing when you really stop and think about this. So let's keep going, shall we? This is wonderful stuff. I love how he puts all this. This this is sensational, truly. Facsimile number one. Let's get on with it. In an ancient Egyptian papyrus dating to roughly the first or the second century A.D., now there is a lion couch scene similar to the one shown in facsimile number one. Underneath the illustration, the text reads: Abraham, who upon... dot dot dot. Well, there is a break in the text here. <laughs> Okay, he says there is a break in the text here. as pure bullshit, but we'll allow him that. So we do not know what word followed. The key, however, is that an ancient Egyptian document from approximately the same period as the papyri Joseph Smith had in his possession associated Abraham with a lion couch scene Whoa, baby, there's your evidence right there. Joseph Smith was right. He associated Abraham with a lion couch scene. Now, before we get too hot and bothered, excited, bear our testimonies and go back to church, let's understand one thing. This is inbred Mormon scholarship of Michael Dennis Rhodes simply copying what John Gee wrote. John Gee was the first well, Actually, I think it was Hugh Nibley who discovered this first. Then John Gee took the football and immediately ran in for the touchdown, but he ran into the wrong goal. He got turned around and ran the other way and scored six points for the other team. Michael Dennis Rhodes stupidly kicked the extra point. So what about this Abraham association with Lion Cow scene? Well, one of my videos just recently, one of my live sessions, I talked extensively about that. Let's see one more time, however, the idea here. And now this is from The Greek Magical Papyri in Translation, an excellent scholarly text by Hans Dieter Betz. In this book, you guys, it's important to understand in his second revised enlarged edition, he included the demotic spells. And in the preface, he talks about that. There's probably 35, 40 extra uh, demotic spells that were included in this second edition because they were so important, not just the Greek but also the Demotic, because it was the same principle, theme, an idea. You notice he never mentioned Greek magical papyri. Of course not. Michael Rhodes doesn't want you to realize what this provenance really is. He wants to confirm Joseph Smith, Abraham is associated with a lion couch. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. The Holy Ghost testifies to me that that is true, right? I'm going to show you this so that you can see me do this. I know it's amateur hour. Don't worry about that. This is from the book. It is on page 171 move my fat fingers, there is the lion couch that he is talking about. Now, this particular one, this was translated by Janet Johnson. This particular picture does not have the Greek text written under it. There is a Greek text under that lion couch that does have the name of Abraham mentioned in it. The parts in orange that I have colored show that the context of the person on that lion couch is not Abraham. It is a woman. And the magic spell, the voodoo, The Ouija board. I'm I'm saying this deliberately so that Mormons can finally come to realize the provenance of this does not support the Mormon Melchizedek priesthood thinking of holiness and religiosity associated with Abraham, the father of the faithful. This is pagan, heathen, Greek magic, voodoo, conjuration, where not only Abraham's name is mentioned. You can pause the video and you can read that stuff in orange that is contexted as a female. This is about a man who is conjuring the gods to turn this woman on so that he can have sex with her. That is the meaning and context of Abraham associated with this lion couch, it's Leiden 184. Understand this, that is how, to me, it makes the apologists look absolutely desperate for anything they can get their hands on in order to confirm Joseph Smith. And it's just, well, lazy learning stupidity. They have so much apologetics on the brain that the first thing they think of is, oh, the name Abraham. Oh, there's a lion house there. Joseph Smith's a true prophet without ever worrying, taking the time to do the scholarly thing and study this thing out and find out what it really is all about, they instantly begin writing, we have confirmation of Joseph Smith. And it's nowhere close. Abraham, as Ed Ashman demonstrated in his excellent review of John Gee's silliness with this particular issue and this exact papyri in his, in his article, the use of Egyptian magical papyri to authenticate the book of Abraham. Ed Ashman demonstrated how John Gee just ignores the fact that not only Abraham's name is involved with this lion couch, but so are many other names. Some of them invented, so far as we can tell. We've never found them anywhere else. Others are Christian. Some of them are Jewish. Some of them are Mesopotamian. Some of them are deities. Some of them are animals. And it's all strung together. And after all of the gibberish, then the man asks the supreme intelligence to use his power because he used every magical name he could conjure up and think of in order to convince the God that he really wanted to make love to this woman, would the God please help him? Abraham's name is not confirming the biblical patriarch. It is basic as a magician's name. Finally, now, Agreed. I agree. It it was 2003 when Michael Dennis Rhodes wrote this before John Gee got his head handed to him on a platter, and he was virtually forced to acknowledge, well, yes, it is a magical text, and if anybody hates magic more than John Gee, I have yet to meet him. You mention Joseph Smith and magic in the same breath, and you will get eviscerated. You will have the SCMC on your doorstep asking you if you still have a testimony, right? Don't you dare associate Joseph Smith with magic. D. Michael Quinn tried it, and he got clobbered, right? Well, what are they doing using magical conjuration as confirmation of Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Abraham, then. But see, that's what they don't want you to know. Again, in true Mormon apologetic fashion, they refuse to give you the actual context. All they saw was Abraham lying couch. Oh, Joseph Smith is a true prophet! And it's silly apologetics, not actual scholarship. Sucks to be them. I'm just saying, don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. So now, let me uh, let me keep going. So that's that part of this facsimile number one mentioned with Abraham in 2003 Rhodes who was a lazy learner himself did not bother to check up on the context he simply saw John Gee getting famous and popular and he said whoa baby I can jump on this bandwagon I'm gonna mention this too and that's all he did you know (laughs) and it's just silly so Egyptologists, moving on to the next point, Egyptologists call documents like facsimile 2 a hypocephalus. This is Greek word for under the head, since the document was placed under the head of the deceased in the coffin. Over a hundred examples of them are located in museums around the world, unlike any Nephite uh, swords or armor or anything. Oh, sorry, this isn't about the Book of Mormon discoveries that... None have found this is Egyptology discoveries on an Egyptian papyrus of the early Christian period is the phrase Abraham, the pupil of the eye of the wedjat." in the 167th chapter of the book of the dead, which tells how to make a hypocephalus. The wedjot eye is described and the hypocephalus itself is called and, I. and so we have a connection with Abraham as the wedge up i with the hypocephalus, facsimile number true, two, since it also is a wedge up i Ding, 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 ding. Point for Joseph Smith. You critics are wrong. <sighs> well let's let a dose of reality smack us, shall we? Again, Ed Ashman, who was so much the more careful and better scholar than John Gee and Michael Dennis Rhodes combined, noted this. Now, again, Rhodes, Gee had already uh, made that. A phony connection between Abraham and the white Jedi and the hypocephalus on the book of the dead see it's Egyptian therefore Joseph Smith's the true prophet the Holy Ghost has testified to me hi hey, can I hold me a little humble you know whatever so it's lazy learning scholarship it's inbred scholarship that we're reading from Rhodes who got it from Guy and Ashman is responding to Gee. here's what he noted Contrary to Guy, the Book of the Dead, chapter 163, is not related to the Book of the Dead, chapter 162, or to Hypocephaly. But since Book of the Dead, 162, does not contain the phrase, the pupil of the wedjat eye, which Gee has identified with Abraham and considers to be one of the Egyptian names for a hypocephalus, he must treat Book of the Dead 163 as though it too were a hypocephalus chapter, because of its reference to the deceased. As one hidden within the pupil of the sound I, the wedgeot. So Guy thus improperly asserts that the pupil of the wedgeot eye refers to a hypocephalus in order to make a connection between the hypocephalus and Abraham in his effort to authenticate Joseph Smith's explanation of the hypocephalus in the book. Of Abraham. In other words, once again, which is so unfortunate, I'm not crowing about this. This puts a black eye on scholarship in general. Uh, Thank goodness none of the other scholarly journals publish any of John Gee's horrid crap. Uh, it has to be done within a self-invented Mormon scholarly journal, because the Mormons are the only ones that's going to publish this kind of bull roar. But we can see John Gee manipulating the evidence, can't we? Uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes, well, Carrie Molstein did too, but Michael Dennis Rhodes just simply took John Gee at his word and simply reused his argument plagiarized him, more or less. Inbred scholarship, that's what we have. So, no point. So, next point that uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes says, the Apocalypse of Abraham, which is a pseudographical text dating from the early Christian era, describes a vision that Abraham saw while making a sacrifice to God. In this vision, he has shown the plan of the universe, what is in the heavens, on the earth, in the sea, in the abyss, and in the lower depths. This language is very close to the phrase found in facsimile number two, figures 9, 10, and 11. If you haven't read Dan Vogel yet, you need to, on his book of Abraham apologetics, to find why that is so problematic. Which reads, Almighty God, Lord of heaven and earth, of the hereafter and of his great waters. In this same text, Abraham sees the fullness of the universe and its circles in all and a picture of creation with two sides. See the similarity with the hypocephalus. See, here we see Michael Rhodes just fobbing off of Hugh Nibley's interpretation and scholarship, don't we? See, lazy learning produces more lazy learning and faulty conclusions. This hypocephalus, which for the Egyptians represents the whole of the world in a circular format, is striking. It doesn't represent anything of the sort, the hypocephalus. It might have in the apocalypse of Abraham from the Christian era, but that is not what an Egyptian hypocephalus is doing, as we'll read in Stephen Thompson's analysis. There is even the description of what are clearly the four figures labeled number six in the Joseph Smith hypocephalus. It also tells how Abraham is promised the priesthood, which will continue in his posterity. Ah, this sounds like book Abraham, doesn't it? Right. A promise associated with the temple. Oh, now they're getting excited. If you can tie anything at all to the temple, you've got true testimony. Yeah, you know, they always do this. Always. It's just it's silly. He has shown the hosts of stars and the orders they were commanded to carry out and the elements of the earth obeying them. This language shows a remarkable parallel to the wording in the book of Abraham. And let's say let's take a look. All right. Calm down, Rhodes. Easy, boy. Down, boy, down. You're slobbering too much. Number one, we are talking an ancient Egyptian funerary document, okay? So, to find parallels to Joseph Smith's supposed translation from the Egyptian, which is completely wrong, to a fictional story about Abraham invented in Christ's day and say that's a hit for Joseph Smith's Egyptian interpretation, which is completely wrong. That stretching it, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean seriously. Rhodes himself translated the papyri. He doesn't find anything about Abraham having the priesthood handed down. None of that, none of that is in the papyri. So why is he making hash about it here? He knows better. He's faking it, right? That's pathetic. He knows, as well as all the rest of us now, especially since my last live session, along with Kerry Molstein, he knows that there is no biblical provenance for the book of Abraham. And yet here he is saying, Oh, look at this great biblical parallel with a fictitious story, the apocalypse of Abraham in Jesus's day. Joseph Smith himself, through revelation, either through the Urim and Thummim or direct inspiration, as Frederick G. Williams said he translated the papyri under, or through the revelation of the personage of Jesus Christ, as I believe the witness was William Brown who testified of that. Don't quote me on that exactly. One of them did say it was through Jesus Christ, and Joseph Smith never corrected any of that. That rumor was allowed to spread far and wide. It was revelation. Joseph Smith got his biblical knowledge of the papyri, and it's just not there. It doesn't even date to the right time. And Rhodes thinks that's a parallel? Let's go on. Facts number three. In the Testament of Abraham, another pseudepigraphic another text of the early Christian era. See, th- this, I, he, okay, let's go on. <sighs> Boy, in the Testament of Abraham, another pseudepigraphic text of the early Christian era, Abraham sees a vision of the Last Judgment that is unquestionably related to the judgment scenes pictured in the 125th chapter of the Book of the Dead, thus clearly associating Abraham with this ancient Egyptian work. One of the Joseph Smith papyri is, in fact, a drawing of this judgment scene from the 125th chapter of the Book of the Dead, and facsimile number three is a scene closely related to this, and it's absolutely nothing of the sort, and Rhodes knows it. When he translates facsimile number three, the hieroglyphics, he doesn't give us Joseph Smith's interpretations of the judgment scene. He gives us the Egyptian aspect. And yet he turns around and says, another fictional production by a Jewish Christian or a Jew or whatever, thousands of years after Abraham, it's just his view of trying to glorify the father of the faithful for whatever reason, we don't know. That can't possibly establish the biblical historicity of a real flesh and blood Abraham, 2000 B.C., There is nobody in the world who thinks that happens, unless you're a Mormon apologist who wants to defend Joseph Smith. Is it any wonder they can't get this silly crap published anywhere except in their own made journals? I mean, my heavens, that is so pathetic. That doesn't do anything for us, does it? Let's go on. (laughs) he implicitly acknowledges this amazingly because now he says the important point here, the important point here is that we find ancient Near Eastern documents that are roughly contemporary with the Hypocephalus and the other Egyptian papyri purchased by Joseph Smith that relate the scenes portrayed Portrayed in facsimiles 1, 2, and 3 with Abraham, just as Joseph Smith said. Significantly, none of these documents had ever been discovered at Joseph Smith's time. <laughs> he's giving us the old Hugh Nibley canard, isn't it? But notice he's saying this all confirms Joseph Smith's interpretation of the Egyptian in the facsimiles. Then, why, when he does a scholarly publication that he knows damn well is going to be read by other Egyptologists, why is it he actually translates the Egyptian hieroglyphics into the truth that has nothing to do with Joseph Smith's lame interpretations? That's called two facedness, folks. That doesn't convince me that he's being honest here at all. And, and yet again, he has to rely on a, a fictional story invented about Abraham by God who knows who, some Jewish guy, somewhere, some when. And he thinks that establishes the fact that Abraham really had that vision and those occurrences? Oh, come on, Can you say naive loud enough? Right? <laughs> That's pathetic. That's not scholarship. That's apologetics. Right? Let's go on. There is yet more. So let's discuss. It doesn't confirm the biblical provenance. Oh, 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 oh. I have a note here. Hold on, I got to read Moden own notes here, man. Ed Ashment, I have my note here. Yeah, this is grossly misleading. Using a Christian era text for Abraham, there is no priesthood given to Abraham in any of the three facsimiles. Um, Let's see, where is Ashment page? five. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Ed Ashman corrects this. And again, I'm going to back up just a few sentences here. He is once again discussing the facsimile of the lion couch vignette found in the Greek magical papyri, but this applies to all of the facsimiles the Lion Couch vignette of, and I said 184, it's Leiden 384. I apologize earlier. I said it was Leiden 184. I was wrong. It's Leiden 384 colon one. This does not depict a human sacrifice. Now, true. Rhodes is not talking about that. Ashman is responding to Guy here. But Molstein picked up this human sacrifice issue from Gee and ran with it again in the wrong end zone and scored a touchdown. And uh, then they kicked the extra point. The adjacent text that Gee cites does not contain a plea of deliverance by an intended sacrificial victim. Book of the Dead chapter 163 has nothing to do with hypocephali, which in turn have nothing to do with Abraham, Abram, A-B-R-A-A-M, one of the names used in the magical spells, and Abracom, A-B-R-A-C-A-M, another one of the uh, variant spellings of Abraham in a magic spell, not as proof that Abraham actually existed. That's too ludicrous to believe anyone thinks that, except Mormon apologists do possibly originating from the name Abraham, these all serve merely as potential magical words. They do not have an authenticating connection with Abraham as depicted in the book of Abraham. There's the rub. Yeah. And There is no known ancient Egyptian documents that are related to the text of the book of Abraham, and the likelihood that any will be found is slim at best. And the second point Ashman makes so powerfully, the only relationship between hypocephali and the text of the book of Abraham is the one that Joseph Smith asserted. John Gee has followed up on that. And Michael Dennis Rhodes continues to fob off John Gee and Hugh Nibley's scholarship, and they just completely misunderstand the whole thing. Or else they understand, ah, and I hate to go this route because I'm not trying to add hominem, but these guys are well enough read and well enough known. They understand the Egyptological materials as well as the other stuff, Maybe perhaps they're misusing the evidence on purpose because they have no choice, in which case that shows they are completely bankrupt, right? Yeah, yeah, that's ugly, man. So, in fact, similarly, number three, let's get on to the next point here. In the Testament of Abraham, oh, 22 likes. Thank you, you guys. You're far too kind. I haven't been paying attention to what you say. Hey, Bruce K., welcome. Oh, Tim Rathbone, welcome. Yep. Oh, The Last Goonie, welcome. Love having all you guys. Oh, Michael Ray, welcome. Anyway, hope you guys are having as much fun as I am in the Testament of Abraham. <laughs> okay, now we're going to move to fact summary number three. And what's he do? Does he establish the provenance using the Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith had? No. He has to go to another invented text by some pious Jew or Jewish Christian or whatever who made up stories about Abraham. That is what Sudapikov is. Oh, sure, they claim to have visions and revelations and so on and so forth. We understand that, but that doesn't establish the historicity of Abraham let alone that it establishes Joseph Smith's text of the book of Abraham, which we know cannot possibly have come from the papyri like Joseph Smith claimed. That's the whole rub, man. Joseph Smith's claims are wrong. This is why the apologists struggle mightily against the tide of actual scholarship with their piddly apologetic efforts of finding any kind of parallel, no matter how loose, fast, and stupid, and pretend like this verifies Joseph Smith. And it just doesn't. It can't. This can't. Let me read this. Facsimile number three. Okay, so strike one on facsimile number one, strike two on facsimile number two, is he going to strike out or hit a home run here? We're on facsimile number three, Dr. Rhodes. You need to get hustling. In the Testament of Abraham, another pseudepigraphic text of the early Christian era, Abraham sees a vision of the last... Oh, I already read that. Oh, I already read that. So I'm repeating myself. Strike three, you're out. Sorry. Okay, so let's go to Joseph Smith's interpretations of the facsimiles. Here, here's where things get wild. Oh my goodness. What about Joseph Smith's interpretations of the three facsimiles? Well, they're pure bunk. Oh, wait, I'm jumping the gun. <laughs> Are they valid? Well, no. <laughs> Do they make sense? Uh nope. As we look at evidence, notice. This this is a real important point. As we look at evidence in support of Joseph Smith's explanations of the three facsimiles of the book of Abraham, notice what they're doing. This leads simply to confirmation bias. They're only looking at one point of view. We're going to ignore everything else that refused Joseph Smith. We only want to look at the evidence that supports him, and then we will gleefully use that evidence, and then the Holy Ghost will gleefully confirm to us through the Spirit that Joseph Smith's a true prophet. This is bunk. Oh, thank you. Oh, you are so kind. Fine business operator. Thank you so much. That's very kind. Robert Herring, good to see you. Oh, Radio Free Mormon, good good to see you again, my friend. Teresa Pittman, good to see you. Fine business operator, you are wonderful, thank you. Heidi Christensen, welcome. Teresa Pittman, welcome. Nathan Arms. my glass, I hope I'm pronouncing your names right. Please forgive me if I'm, anyway, thanks for coming all you guys. This is terrific. I'm just right in the heart of this simple stupidity, or I mean lazy, or I mean apologetics. Yeah, that's it. Apologetics of Carrie, of Michael Dennis Rhodes. So here's his setup, see? And and this is so typical. It just, oh God. So as we look at evidence in support of Joseph Smith's explanations of the three facsimiles of the book of Abraham, it is important to recognize that whenever we do find a piece of evidence supporting Joseph Smith's explanations. Now notice this. He is saying that he's been finding evidence supporting Joseph Smith, and he hasn't found anything yet. Now, that's the classic definition of delusion, isn't it? I'm not trying to ad hominem the man. I'm not. Hey, he has a PhD in astrophysics. I know he's got a brain. But really? He's already, he's begging the question. Well, of course, I'm finding evidence. That's what I'm writing about. This is perfect evidence supporting. No, it's not. But let's keep going. It is important to recognize whenever we do find a piece of evidence supporting this must carry a great deal of weight since the secular probability of the evidence being correct is much smaller than that of being wrong. So this is something we all know from experience in trying to answer a multiple-choice question when we do not know the correct answer. If Joseph Smith explained one thing correctly, this could be attributed to chance. But when we find many examples of his explanation being correct for all practical purposes, this eliminates chance or good guessing. But he hasn't found one thing yet. Isn't that astonishing? So he's trying to say, hey, this isn't luck. This is the power of the evidence. There isn't anything yet. It's all been refuted. (laughs) That's astonishing, isn't it? This eliminates chance or good guessing. He's not even guessing good. He's getting everything wrong, Uh, both Joseph Smith and his fellow apologists. This this is just astonishing, isn't it? So it is also important to remember that we do not have, we do not have the original illustrations made by Abraham. Rather, we have copies made nearly 2,000 years later with the consequent problems of changes and distortions. Once again, I will say, I, I'm not going to read... How long have I been going? Yeah, I've been going over an hour. Um, I'm not going to... Where is my paper? Oh, yes, I am. He is setting up a straw man. And the reason he is is because he has to ignore what Joseph Smith himself taught his fellow saints... And he has to ignore what the witnesses who were being shown the papyri and the mummies, you know, through several, several years, he has to ignore what they were saying in order to say what he just said. Here is the issue. Now, later on, Mormon apologist Jan Jodal around the turn of the last century, around the 1900s, I believe him and Reynolds did a lot of Book of Mormon stuff together, and Hugh Nibley and many others who want to put words into the prophet's mouth and pretend this was merely a copy of a book of Abraham. This does violence to literally all of the background, evidence, and words of everyone who were directly involved with the papyri. There were no copies of copies of copies of copies because the sure testimony given to Joseph Smith by revelation from heaven was that the record was hid for the last 4,000 years with the mummy. And then it was discovered. It was not handed down and copied and muddled up and mistranslated and changed like the biblical record. That is not what Joseph Smith learned through Revelation. This was a unique, pristine record originally by Abraham and Joseph while they were in Egypt, and then it was preserved for 4,000 years. And then it came forth. This is what Michael Dennis Rhodes is ignoring in order to make his apologetic, which saves Joseph Smith. I mean, yeah, here comes that word again. It has become my favorite word. I apologize. I know I just bore you stiff when I say this, but I can't find any greater irony in Mormonism, you guys, than in order to save Joseph Smith, you literally have to ignore him, which is an admission, unspoken, of course, that he didn't know diddly-squat about the papyri and its actual nature and what it actually said. That's what they're admitting. Well, Joseph Smith blew it. Today's Egyptology has not confirmed Joseph Smith in any manner whatsoever, whether it's using the papyri itself or the facsimiles that Abraham, Joseph Smith, said come from the book of Abraham, of course, because Abraham drew the pictures and signed the book. (laughs) None of that's accurate, man. (laughs) This uh, This just blows you out of the water when you really recognize the implication of why the apologists argue the way they do and why they pull all of this Really, truly, sincerely, I'm not trying to over exaggerate this, but talk about irrelevant evidence on arguing. Uh, yeah, the Testament of Abraham, the Apocalypse of Abraham. Well, it's got Abraham's name in it. It must be confirmatory. It's fiction written thousands of years too late if Joseph Smith is correct. Obviously, the apologists don't think he is. Otherwise, they would just give us the simple Egyptian papyri translation and be done with it. Instead, look at how they are floundering about, trying to find anything, even as stupid as a Greek magical papyri with a lion couch and Abraham's name in it. That does not do anything anything for the text of the book of Abraham, and the context is completely, wildly different than anything Joseph Smith ever imagined. You know, for all the world of scholarship, to me, that just smacks of desperation, doesn't it? Give me any other choice to come to. Or conclusion. Give me any other choice to find any other conclusion. I, I, this is ridiculous. I'm not done. Neither is he. All right. I, I'm yeah. I'm getting it. Okay. Oh, once again. Oh my goodness. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this soberly. sincerely now. Hold on. We got to get a drink of water. Got to wet me, Whistler. Oh, the glory of pure water. Mm. Who knew H2O was so good? Especially when it's refrigerated. Again, here's Rhodes's view. The most important correlation, of course, is one already mentioned above, that another ancient Egyptian text dating from approximately the same time as the Joseph Smith papyri associates Abraham with a lion count scene. He says this is, I'm going to put this up there so that you can see it, I printed it off, the most important correlation And it is light years away from any kind of realistic possible support of Joseph Smith and his explanation. Rhodes imagines that it's absolutely critical evidence, el numero uno. We win with this evidence. Are you kidding me? (laughs) <laughs> Only if you copy John Gee's misguided, misdirected, deliberate manipulation of the evidence, maybe. <laughs> Which is what Rhodes, unfortunately, did. So they carry Molstein. And Molstein had to apologize for it later. He had to back off and say, ah, oh, <laughs> all right, it was a woman, not Abraham. How embarrassing. And Wouldn't you think they would learn after a while to quit believing and trusting each other and quit being lazy learners and actually do their own scholarship? We noticed Kerry Mulstein did that finally with the witnesses, which I made a great to-do about the last live session, because he finally researched them on his own and discovered the actual provenance. Unfortunately for him, he gave us the key to killing it all right And notice I'm using that key against Rhodes. Properly so. None of this is the right provenance. It can't have a biblical provenance like this. It doesn't exist in reality. It is a phantasm. It is an hallucination. It really is. It's just a puff of smoke. Not even out of the world's best cigar. That sucks. At least smoke a good cigar for us, Joe. Dadgummit. Critics have maintained that Fastenaline number one portrays an embalming of or a resurrection scene, not a sacrifice. And indeed, in its present form, in its present form, it does represent the resurrection of horror, the original owner of the Book of Breathings, Papyrus. Uh, Excuse me, wait. Did I read that right? Let me reread this. This is from Michael Dennis Rhodes. This is his study. He's defending Joseph Smith. (gasps) Critics have maintained that facsimile number one portrays an embalming of resurrection scene, not a sacrifice. And indeed, in its present form, it does represent the resurrection of horror, the original owner of the Book of Breathing's Papyrus. What? I thought that was supposed to be Abraham. (laughs) Hey, you can't make this stuff up, man. Here we have a guy who is saying, oh, yeah, hey, Joseph Smith and those facts to Emily's. How about those home runs Joseph Smith keeps on hitting, man? Oh, he is so right. This is the sacrifice of Abraham, the father of the faithful, man. That stupid little dirty rat standing in front of him is the Egyptian priest, and he's trying to kill our beloved father Abraham. And yet when he discusses it scholarly, he admits that it's nothing of the sort. Uh, am I the only one who is astounded here? Tell me I'm not the only one seeing the problem here. Right. How does he get out of that? <laughs> You're ready for some more fun. <laughs> we get to see apologetic slapstick here, man. <laughs> this will take your breath away. <laughs> Almost hate doing this to him, man. Well, no, that's not true. He he wrote this. Hey, he wrote this. I didn't make him write this silliness. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just sharing it. Okay. So there are, however, there are, however, some peculiar and unique aspects to the illustration. In all known ancient egyptian examples of a resurrection scene the figure on the lion couch has his legs spread as in fact 1 but is wearing no clothing for the egyptians resurrection was a rebirth and when we are born we have no clothes on <laughs> oh, 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 oh. okay be be serious curry be serious the, the figure <sighs> the figure in a resurrection scene also only has one arm raised while the other is at his side. Facsimile one is unique in that the figure is clothed and he has both hands raised in the classical Egyptian gesture of prayer, certainly a carryover from the original illustration by Abraham where he was praying. Did you get that? <laughs> oh my God. Okay, <laughs> well, if <laughs> if the original this is the new rule for apologists. Now listen up, you apologists, you budding apologists. If the evidence does not support your case, then invent some. Yeah, baby. So first off, who gives a flying flip? About originality. Every single lion couch you look at, you guys, has unique features to it. Do you know why? Because they were drawn by individuals for individuals. This wasn't an illustrated concept in the religious thinking of the ancient Egyptians that they put in the ancient Egyptian encyclopedia of knowledge and printed and shared throughout all of the kingdom across up and down the Nile. (laughs) This was just individual pictures. So he agreed that this is actually a resurrection scene of the original owner of the papyri. And then he says, oh, but hey, there's some unique features here. Does that help Joseph Smith's interpretation of this being Abraham as a sacrifice? It doesn't. This is a complete red herring. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. Unique features? You can find unique features in every single hypocephalus. You can find unique features in every single facsimile number three. You can find unique features in every single lion couch you ever compare. What on earth does that have to do with anything? Once again, we see Michael Dennis Rhodes in a lazy learning inbred scholarship just simply fobbing off of Hugh Nibley's arguments. And Nibley was just wrong. So is Michael Dennis Rhodes. That has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> That's astonishing, isn't it? And then he says this. This is what I mean when I say invent the evidence. Because he's not inventing the fact that these are unique features. That's not the invented part. Here's the invented part where he says, Ah, facsimile one is unique in that the figure is clothed and in the gesture of prayer is certainly a carryover from the original illustration by Abraham where he was praying. What original illustration by Abraham is Rhodes possibly talking about? This is the original illustration by Abraham. It's not something else. (laughs) <laughs> See, again, they muddy up the waters, right? <laughs> this this particular facsimile number three, I promise, I, I am not making this up. I've shown you the evidence in previous live sessions. The heading of facsimile number one says, from the book of Abraham. This particular facsimile number one came from the book of Abraham. Well, number two says the same thing. And facsimile number three has the same heading also. They came where? From the book of breathings. They were cut from the book of breathings. There's your identification. There isn't another text. This is the original Rhodes is just blowing smoke up our skirts, man. He's trying to create enough space that he can insert as pure assertion with fundamentally no evidence whatsoever an extra papyrus roll. (laughs) Desperation, right? Wow. Give me any other conclusion to come to, man, for Pete's sake. Okay, here's another one. L- let's keep going. Okay, this is Rhodes Samar. Another criticism leveled against the interpretation, in fact, number one, is that the standing figure is not a priest, but is in fact the Egyptian god Anubis. As represented on the papyrus, the figure is indeed Anubis. As rep resented on the papyrus the figure is indeed Anubis that's what he said keep that in mind however there are examples from Egypt of priests wearing masks of God when carrying out their priestly duties. John Gee's book on the Joseph Smith papri in my inbred scholarship simply following him, oh, no, that's me saying it, sorry. John Gee's book on the Joseph Smith papri shows an example of an Egyptian priest wearing a mask of Anubis as well as an actual mask of Anubis found by archaeologists, we have archaeological proof for Joseph Smith now, except for one problem. Robert Rittner eviscerates this argument. Now, of course, uh, Rhodes wouldn't have known this because Rittner's book is written later. But let me share what Rittner says. As an actual Egyptologist, here's what he says. Gee wrongly conflated this Anubis with masked Anubis priests at funerals. Actors did not, however, impersonate Mott, Osiris, and Isis at funerals. Gee's suggestion was not repeated by Michael Dennis Rhodes elsewhere. In another, in his translation of the Book of Horror, Rhodes did not repeat this mask idea like he does in this particular article. In other words, he's just simply fobbing off of John Gee's stupid stupid argument, right? So we have a professional Egyptologist who says, wrong answer, Buckwheat, that's not how it works. But wait, there's more. Hold on, let me take out this marker real quick. There is more. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, and I've been skipping over Stephen Thompson. Dadgummit, I wanted to share some of Stephen Thompson's ideas. Maybe I'll wrap up with Stephen Thompson. I had all this laid out so I could go from source to source to source to, source to show the silliness. Okay, let's see. Yeah, here we go. Ed Ashman, again, in his The Use of Egyptian Magical Papyri to Authenticate the Book of Abraham, where Ed Ashman is spanking John Gee's bare little bottom bright red, and John Gee is squealing like a wanny baby, rightfully so, because Ashman is using a three-inch thick paddle, and he's really whaling his argument. Okay. On the mask. Because Joseph Smith restored a man's head to the damaged Anubis from the lion couch vignette and identified him as the idolatrous priest of Elkanah, in facsimile one of the book of Abraham, Gee wants to minimize the fact that the facsimile should have been restored with Anubis's head instead of a man's. So, accordingly, John Gee begs the question with his assertion that Anubis is indistinguishable from his priest, who wears a jackal mask over his head, appealing for support to an article about masks by a scholar named Sieber in 1980, The Egyptians, in fact, were concerned about representing the god in their illustrations, not the person doing the officiating, which may be why there is only one known illustration of a priest wearing the mask of a god, and it may not even be a depiction of an actual event, according to Sieber, which Guy did not use, that part. The question is not whether priests impersonated gods On cultic occasions by wearing masks. The question is whether or not Joseph Smith's reconstruction of the standing figure in his lion couch vignette is accurate. It is not. Now, the evidence from the lion couch vignette of Papyrus Joseph Smith I clearly shows the remnant of Anubis's headdress and he shows a picture. We've all seen this. I'll show it to you in a minute. Which Joseph Smith's restoration omits. Now Paul Osborne has talked about this a lot. And I will I will bring in more of his details. Oh see I'm out of time again. Dadgummit. I will bring in more of Paul Osborne's exquisite details on Anubis and the mask and the snout being chopped off and all that next week. Sorry, Paul. I, I, I'm serious. I, I meant to get to you. Uh, I just keep running out of time. There's so much information, you guys. Oh, my gosh. It's incredible so because Joseph Smith was unacquainted with ancient Egyptian lion scenes, it is only natural that he would not recognize the headdress remnants for what they are. And so he instructed Reuben Hedlock to restore hypothetically a man's head consonant with his interpretation of Anubis as the idolatrous priest of Elkanah, as figure 8 indicates, the correct restoration of the vignette would require Anubis's head, not a man's. So there is no evidence of a man's head on the papyrus, and there is no precedent for one on any known lion couch scene. In light of the review of this first article, Guy dropped his original claim that the person about to be sacrificed was Abraham and now maintains that it was a woman on the lying couch of the magical spell who was the intended sacrificial victim. And then he applies that to the three virgins, which is just ludicrous. Now that's not something Rhodes said. Here's this picture that Ashman is talking about. This top, this top one here. This is his front arm here. This is the headless Anubis. Right here is the remnant of Anubis' headdress, and you can see it here in the second one. Joseph Smith removed it and put a man's head on and then said it was a priest of Elkanah. None of this is accurate. None of it at all. But you notice Rhodes won't talk about that. All he does in inbred fashion is stupidly, merely without thinking through it or doing any clever research himself, he just simply copies John Gee's lame argument. Inbred Mormon scholarship, that's that's my new definition of apologetics, Mormon apologetics. Inbred Mormon scholarship. There's no peer review. These guys, if they find something they think confirms Joseph Smith, their buddies, their peers just say, Whoa, that's cool, man. We've got a brand new example of that with Blake Osler finding the name Abraham hidden in the lotus of facsimile number one or three, I believe. In, in front of the uh, seated figure, and it's just ludicrously stupid. Even Robert Smith disagrees with it. Although I will say Robert Smith on the uh, former Mormon Fairboard message board uh, lamely accepts the fact that the name Abraham is associated with lion count scenes. That has nothing to do with confirming Joseph Smith's interpretation of Abraham on a lion couch, however. And Robert Smith knows that, but he's trying hard to do damage control. He just posted this last week, just one week ago. And he said, But we know that Abraham's name is associated with lion couches. Yes, in magical voodoo contexts, Robert Smith. Of course, it's magical. It's the stuff you don't accept as true. It's the opposite of priesthood in Mormon theological thinking. It's the stuff that got D. Michael Quinn excommunicated when he showed. It's not enough to just say, hey, The name Abraham is associated with the lion couch. Therefore, Joseph Smith is a true prophet. Neener, neener, neener. I know that makes me look so unprofessional, but that seems to be the childish attitude of all of the apologists. Who cares if the name's associated with it? What is the context? It's never the context that Joseph Smith gave it or that he translated Supposedly, from the papyri into the story of the book of Abraham, that context is absolutely nowhere else, anywhere else in an Egyptian context, which Joseph Smith claims is the context. We have the Kirtland Egyptian papers, we have the Egyptian alphabet figures, we have the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Joseph Smith always identified it as biblical and Egyptian. That's something even Robert Smith doesn't dare go to, you know. So, yeah, this this is crazy beans, man. This is absolutely crazy beans. So, oh, this is good too. Man, he has so much. Joseph Smith and the four idolatrous gods. The four canopic jars under the under the lion couch. Rhodes says that this is really an impressive correlation because the four names that Joseph Smith gave those figures under that lion couch correlate to linguistically ancient authentic, Hebrew names. Did you notice the sleight of hand? Here's where I get to use an apologist to refute an apologist. John Gee in his master's thesis, 2000, or 1991, I mean, in his master's thesis. And the name of his master's thesis, I ordered this from Farms. Notes on the Sons of Horace. Yes, 1991 from Farms. I don't even know if this is available, but man, it's atrocious. No wonder Rittner cringed when he read this. Holy nightmare, Batman. He did not do this under Rittner. Rittner would not have let him get away with this kind of silly apologetic at all. Here's Gies. Definition, description, identification, and proper labeling of the four sons of Horus. Imseti, Hapi, Duamutef, and Kebesenuf. Now, I don't know if I exactly pronounce those correct, but those are the names given, the four sons of Horus, those Canopic figures under the lion couch by the Egyptian Book of the Dead as per John Gee in his Egyptologist master's thesis. Here's what Rhodes says, astonishingly enough. He says, now look at this. The names of the idolatrous gods mentioned in facsimile 1 provide another example of the validity of Joseph Smith's explanations. And he's stone-cold, sober, serious. The validity? If Joseph Smith had simply made up the names, if, (laughs) if Joseph Smith had what do you mean, if? Michael Rhodes, what do you mean if there's not a scholar out there that confirms these four names of the four sons of Horus in an Egyptian lion scene? Michael Dennis Rhodes, there is no if. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, I just, oh, wow. If Joseph Smith had simply made up the names, the chances of their corresponding to the names of ancient deities would be astronomically small. So see, he's saying we can correlate Joseph Smith's names with any deities we want at all. So he goes on to this linguistics, linguistic spaghetti salad smorgasbord sort of nonsense. And he says, the name Elkanah for example, is clearly related to the Hebrew Elkanah. God has created or the creator. So it's related to the Hebrew Elkanah, one of the names Joseph Smith came up with. Ooh, wow. Direct hit. Elkanah is found in the Old Testament as the name of several people, including Samuel's father. Ooh, a direct hit. The name is also found as a divine name in Mesopotamian sources. And then Libna, well this is related to the Hebrew Libna meaning the moon, see Isaiah 24:23, from the root Laban, meaning white, a city captured by Joshua was called Libne. Joshua 10, 29, the name Korash is found as a name in Egyptian sources. A connection with Keresh, the name of the Persian king Cyrus, Isaiah forty four twenty eight 28 is also possible. Wow, we have confirmation of Joseph Smith being accurate. And you know what's really odd is he is stone cold serious. <laughs> Not only did Joseph Smith not get any of the names correct, but every single name he came up with, did you notice where Rhodes admits he could have got it from? The Old Testament. Okay. (laughs) That's supposed to impress us? (laughs) See, I, I, I can't do this, man. (laughs) <laughs> this, this doesn't even qualify as high as apologetics, you know. And I'm not real impressed with apologetics. I put it way the hell down here compared to actual scholarship. Way up there. and This isn't even apologetic. That, this is silly. So, fact seven number two in conjunction with fact seven number two. Let's move on. The uh, which Joseph Smith indicates contains astronomical concepts. And Dan Vogel has some great stuff in his book on this. Oh, my gosh. You don't want to miss this. In fact, Dan Vogel, you and Brent Metcalf are going to be on in uh, four days, three days on uh, Mormonism Live. There's Dan Vogel. You don't want to miss his stuff on astronomy. Oh, my gosh. That is some of the greatest material on on deck. Anyway, among other things, it's noteworthy that the ancient Jewish historian Josephus says that Abraham taught the Egyptians' astronomy. Duh. Well, we know Joseph Smith had access to Josephus, so there goes that parallel shot to hell. He's using this as evidence in favor of Joseph Smith. How does that work exactly when he can just simply find it in contemporary sources that he himself had and had access to or else Oliver Cowdery did, or else uh, uh, Wilfred Woodruff did, or else Sidney Rigdon did, etc. You see what he's doing? It doesn't matter where he gets it from, who or what provenance. Anything and everything he can find, no matter how stupid, is evidence in favor of Joseph Smith. That, that can't even be lifted up to the level of apologetics. I mean, wow, really amazing that a grown mature scholar with a PhD when it comes to confirming Joseph Smith's revelations about the book of Abraham does such crap work. That blows my mind. I mean, wow. I'm not ad homining you, Mike Rhodes. You are a good man. You're obviously far advanced in education than I am. You have a PhD, but dude, your argument here is horrible. I can't believe you do this. And get this, I'm going on a minute, an hour, a minute, an hour 40. I hope you forgive me for going over, you guys. I'm not trying to. Uh, Dean Schwenk, welcome. I've got to show you this because it's thank you, Dan Vogel, for demonstrating some stuff in your book. Seriously, Dan Vogel's an eye opener, man. Uh, Okay, let's read what Rhodes says, and then I'll show you the main problem with this. I used to use this argument myself when I was an apologist because I thought it was so flippin' cool, but all I did was copy Hugh Nibley. Well, all Mike Rhodes has done is simply follow Hugh Nibley, right? It's impressive, but unfortunately it's impressively irrelevant. Let me show you what I mean. Here's what he says. In the explanation of figure one, Joseph Smith says that this is Kolob signifying the first creation, nearest to the celestial or the residence of God. The word kolab is particularly interesting. Here we go. Linguistic balderdash 101, just about to hit the fan. There is a common Semitic root, keleb, kerab, that has the basic meaning of heart, center, middle, and to be near, for example, the Arabic Kalb means heart middle center the hebrew karav means middle or midst and the hebrew karav means to be near in arabic the word kalb forms part of the arabic names of several of the brightest stars in the sky including antares and regulus the arabic kalb al assad the heart of the lion is regulus is the brightest star in the constellation leo the lion and canopus I mean, that's incredible. You've got Arabic, Hebrew linguistics, Arabic linguistics, phenomenal, and it means the center, the heart, near, just like Joseph Smith identified Kolob as a true Hebrew word. And it's all bunk Not the Hebrew and Arabic meanings of Kolob, but whether it is significant to help Joseph Smith. It does not. And I have evidence to show you. And I'm going to, again, I apologize for the, oh man, I dropped Robert Rittner on his head through his book. I apologize for the amateurness of this, but I'm going to show you straight from the source, the Joseph Smith Papers. Now, I'm going to take this cover off because it's in the way. And this is the big blue book that I was using. Someone asked me, what is that big blue book? It's the Joseph Smith Papers, Volume 4 on the Book of Abraham. I'm going to turn to page 60. Page 60 in the Joseph Smith Papers, Book of Abraham folio this is the this is the Egyptian alphabet folio A on page 60 this is the one that is in Joseph Smith's handwriting Joseph Smith put this together that is critical to know This is not speculation of Frederick G. Williams or William Wines Phelps. This is Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, who put this together in his folio, the folio they label A. I want to show you this. Hopefully I can do this good enough. Oh, I'm going to come over here so I can make sure I show you this. There are the hieroglyphs. There are all the hieroglyphs. They're identifying them here. On the last one there, Kolob. The last one written, Kolob, in the column. Now, the crazy thing is, the crazy thing is that the words ya. Ho e oop, that is J A H. These are in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar and the alphabet in the Joseph Smith papers, in the Kirtland Egyptian papers. They came up with a whole bunch of names. Yahoo oop, sorry. Yahoo or ni e ha. o e flow ease, flossus, glee they glee flossisis. Dan Vogel has fabulous discussion of this. Finally, he has Kolob. Now, I want you to understand something very seriously damning about this issue. Rhodes says... (sighs) Joseph Smith says that the earth is called Yah-oh-eh, J-A-H-O-H-E-H by the Egyptians. This is the only place in the book of Abraham where he gives an actual translation of an Egyptian word, and that's simply false. To find the Arabic-Hebrew linguistic parallels to Kolob is incredible. Entirely irrelevant because Joseph Smith got every single word. They clo, phleosis, all of that, Kolob, in this column of Egyptian hieroglyphics on the right hand side of the original of facsimile number one. This figure, right? There, where's my pen? Bad gummit. Sorry, this is so amateur, but I want to show you this so you see the evidence. Godfrey, I'm messing this up. I look like an idiot. Right there, that figure right there, that L looking figure. That's the one that Joseph Smith identified off of the papyri as Kolob. He identified it as Egyptian, not Arabic, not Hebrew. He identified lots of words coming off of the papyri and gave them definitions of biblical provenance, which is pure bunk. There is no biblical concepts here. Now that's my emphasis. Dan Vogel has a completely different, much better analysis than I do, scholarly and analyzing all of the various cross-referencing between everything that you really need to get. But my point also means that Rhodes is just full of it. It's not the only word he identified, not by a long shot. Robert Rittner in his book shows that Yah-O-A is not a valid translation of Joseph Smith as the earth. Rhodes says it is. Uh, he says it's a genuine Egyptian translated word, and it's not. Where he got that from, I have no idea. I can't find it in, in uh, Gardner's Egyptian grammar. You can't find it in Faulkner's Middle Egyptian. And you can't find it in in uh, Robert Rittner either. Here's what he says about ya oa He says apologists. Michael Rhodes and John Gee have sought to defend Joseph Smith's explanation of yah O A as, oh, the earth, and then he gives the Egyptian, uh, and I can't, E-O-K-T. Although this is impossible, both by phonetics with three H's and sense, the arable field is not used to indicate the whole earth, contra that is against what Guy and Rhodes claim. Smith vacillated slightly on this interpretation. His statement that the Egyptians named the earth Yahoa would preclude the vocative O that he had once suggested in the Times and Seasons. In any case, the proposed Egyptian etymology is impossible. The footnote. You can, you can put this on pause and read it for yourself right out of Ritner if you don't have Rittner's book. Rhodes is out to lunch. He, he, he's out to lunch. Furthermore, I'm going to take the time. I, I apologize uh, I apologize for going over time. I always go over time. There is so much great stuff to study here, man. I am so not kidding. This is uh, this is Stephen Thompson Egyptology in the book of Abraham. Oh man, I'm an hour and fifty minutes. So I apologize. Good grief. Four sons of Horus. Oh to get to the four quarters of the earth. Where's his Oh here he goes. I, I've got so much more to share with you. I wish I could take the time to do it. Dang it. Okay. Uh, this is in his dialogue article, Stephen Thompson, on the uh, on the uh, Egyptology, the book of Abraham. He says, for example, figure five is identified by Joseph Smith as Enish Goandosh. Now, this is also in his uh, Egyptian alphabet. And this was incorporated into the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, which expanded into the five-degree system. Dan Vogel has all kinds of uh, extra information on that. So we do know Joseph Smith's method of translation, contra Hugh Nibley and all the apologists who wish we didn't have that. Joseph Smith did a stupid thing keeping that. He should have destroyed it all. Thank God he was inspired to keep it, right, for us. So he claims is said by the Egyptians to be the sun. This figure actually depicts the celestial cow goddess known as Ikweret or Mehetweret, the Great Flood, or Hathor. Varga has identified this figure as the most important figure in a hypostyle. These goddesses were thought of as the mother of Re, the sun god, with Mehetweret representing the flood from which he arises daily. The flood was the ocean. The flood was the heavens that the sun was going through in his sun boat. the water. It's important to note that while this figure is associated with the sun as the mother of the sun god, it is never equated with the sun. The sun is always a masculine deity in Egyptian religion. Joseph Smith's interpretation might be judged close by some, but in my opinion, it cannot be judged as generally correct. So there's another Egyptologist who says Joseph Smith blew it. Michael Dennis Rhodes is just simply playing desperate apologist. And so on that note, on the Kolob note, see Enish Go Andosh is another one, and there are several names that Joseph Smith identified and discussed and elaborated on in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, the clefloesis and the clefloes and all that, he claimed were also Egyptian words, and none of them are. That's what's important. See, Michael Dennis Rhodes didn't have the Joseph Smith papers to use, but we do. So this basic overview of roads. let me close. Oh, hey, I'm at a summary here. Oh, I've got to read this last pair. Sorry, no, I'm going to keep going. This is too good to lose. I apologize. Uh, okay, I'll skip that part. Yeah, the Yahweh I had to get to. Yeah. Okay, so with facsimile number three, and then I'll close out. Hold on. With facsimile number three, as with the other two facsimiles now, it is important to keep in mind that the interpretation given by Joseph Smith is for the original illustration made by Abraham, which is different from the form that we have now. Some of the most obvious interpretations are the designation of the female figures two and four as the Pharaoh and Prince of Pharaoh. If we had the original drawn by Abraham, the figures would have matched the Prophet Joseph Smith's explanation. Huh? Is he serious? I, I mean, holy bat-and-mouse-soup Batman. That is ludicrous. If we had the original, it would have matched. How in the hell could he possibly know that? <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. Wow. See, (laughs) he doesn't he doesn't accept the evidence. They have to manipulate it in order to save Joseph Smith. Isn't that amazing? Now here's the summary. This just this made me laugh all over. I laughed till I cried when I read this. While critics of the church often target the facsimiles of the book of Abraham in their attempts to disprove the prophet Joseph Smith. In this paper, I have shown that Joseph Smith correctly interpreted items Found on the three facsimiles of the book of Abraham and that ancient sources also associated Abraham with all three of these illustrations. It is especially important to recognize that knowledge of these Egyptian matters was unavailable even to the best scholars of Joseph Smith's day. This only reaffirms what every honest person can learn in earnest prayer that Joseph Smith was truly a prophet of God and that he received these things through revelation he has failed to actually demonstrate a valid point on any of his core evidences that he says help establish Joseph Smith as a true prophet he thinks he's given us about a a dozen odd evidences that are valid, none of them work. Not a one of them. Now, the reason I brought up Michael Dennis Rhodes, one, it was a good summary, but the second reason was is because this material is still being utilized by people who want to continue believing that Joseph Smith translated the papyri correctly. And that's sad because nothing in the core functions and works. Nothing. Joseph Smith blew it. And the apologists can't save him. Again, they can't use him either, which is really interesting because his entire revealed knowledge is completely out of whack with what we actually do know today. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that is just so crazy. So I, I, I'm i at two hours. So that's what I wanted to cover. That was the, uh, that was the essence of what I wanted to uh, get done. I didn't have to skip very much either. I only skipped one item, and I can get to that another time. So next week... Wednesday, don't forget Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf on Mormonism Live with Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon. You don't want to miss that one. That's going to be a good one. And I will also say uh, Paul Osborne. Now, he goes into exquisite details of specific items like shiny ha and the name of the king. In fact, simile number three and the the chopping off of Anubis's snout, et cetera, and the name of Mott and Isis, et cetera. And I will get into those details with all of the analysis and evidence next week that I didn't cover this week. This time was kind of a beginning overview as an introduction to a detailed study of the facsimiles And there is a boatload of information to learn on these just as well as there are with the papyri. So I'm going to stop for a minute. I'm going to call it good there and uh, chat at you for just a minute. Just kind of look and see what you guys are saying. Oh, I did. I took Bruce Bruce Wayne's name in vain. I apologize. (laughs) Anyway, all right, you guys. Oh Mike Weist, good to see you Tom Miller. Thank you for showing up. Ah. Uh, yeah. I I did too, Radio Free Mormon. I took Bruce names Wayne vain. I feel bad may the Batmobile not squeal its tires on my head. On the other hand, may it also come and park in my garage so that I can drive it. Yeah, baby. I'd love to do that. Who wants to be robbing with me? Okay, you guys, yeah, see you on April 6th, Mormonism Live, absolutely, you betcha, man. Okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to call it good, thank you so much for all of the tenants, uh, 38 likes, gosh, that's very, very nice, thank you, uh, I deserve about half that, but it's okay, I went way too long, two hours, oh, well, hey, you guys had fun, come on, fess up, you had fun, <laughs> I have fun, so there you go, so. All right. Good night, all you guys. I will see you next Sunday here. I will see you Wednesday night at Mormonism Live, and we're going to have a party down weekend or party down week on the uh, on the papyri and the facsimiles, man. Absolutely, T.O. You betcha, Mike. Oh, Huff Daddy, good to see you here. My pleasure. I know it goes by so fast, Dan Vogel. It really does. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. You guys can't do that as good as I can, and you know it. Here I am making a fool of myself live. The whole world's going to watch this, all 150 of them. (laughs) I'm small, meat, and potatoes, but, man, I'm having a ball with you guys. So, hopefully, it'll spread and have a ball learning and educating ourselves. All right. This is me leaving. Thank you for showing up. I appreciate it all. I got to go. Have a good week. See you Wednesday and then next Sunday. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah.